If you want to influence people, the ability to sell is essential. In this week's show, I welcome New York Times bestselling author Daniel Pink to tell us about his new book, To Sell is Human. Stick around, because he'll have you thinking differently about influencing. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 84. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly show to help smart people improve their communication and leadership skills. And it turns out that it's pretty hard to influence people without using sales skills too. About two years ago, I wrote an article called Want to Lead? Get into Sales, because I wanted to really get people I were in my community thinking about how you need to use good sales skills in order to be able to lead. And guess what? No one read the article because it had the word sales in it. And sales is that icky, slimy thing that no one really likes to talk about or deal with unless they absolutely have to. And I'm so glad to welcome this week someone who brings a perspective about sales, which uh, really looks at sales and how it is today and the importance of sales and how we should all be thinking differently about sales. And that's Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink is the author of the new book, To Sell is Human. He previously wrote the book Drive, which is one of the books that's really influenced my thinking significantly in the last five years. And this week, we're going to look at why we're all in sales and how we should look at it differently. And Daniel has done some fantastic research for his new book and uh, joined me over the weekend, actually, to spend a few minutes chatting about To Sell is Human. So here's my chat with Daniel Pink. I'm pleased to welcome Daniel Pink to the show this week. Daniel is the author of five provocative books, including the long-running New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind and Drive, one of my favorite books of the last five years. His latest book, To Sell is Human, is a number one New York Times business bestseller, a number one Wall Street Journal business bestseller, and a number one Washington Post nonfiction bestseller. Dan's books have been translated into 34 languages. Daniel, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Dave, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You have tackled sales in this very newest book. And when I saw the title of your book, I was excited to read it because I have been selling for a long time. Mm. And as you argue in the book, so have the rest of us. And you make a strong case in the book that sales has changed. What's changed? significant things that have changed. The first is that if you look at the U.S. workforce, one in nine people in the U.S. workforce are in sales. That is, their job is to get people to buy stuff. So they're selling minivans, they're selling uh, consulting services, they're selling aircraft parts. But I think the, the first big change is that those other eight and nine who don't have sales in their job title, they're in sales too. Um, we have data showing that they're spending an enormous amount of their time on the job persuading, influencing, convincing people to make an exchange. They are spending upwards of 40% of their time on the job in what I call non-sales selling, which is sales, but the cash register is not ringing, money's not changing hands. So that's the big change. One, we're all in sales now. The second big change is that sales isn't what it used to be. Uh, most of what we know about sales comes from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. Uh, that can lead to shenanigans. That's why we have the principle of buyer beware. Information asymmetry is why a lot of us think that sales is sleazy because we've been on the other side of that 
asymmetrical relation. But uh, in the last few years, that information asymmetry that defined the sales relationship has become something closer to information parity. And um, that's moving us from a world of buyer beware to a world of seller beware. So the two big changes are that like it or not, we're all in sales now, but that sales isn't what it used to be. Most people I know assume that the best salespeople are extroverts. The research you've cited in your book says no. Why not? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. There is a, you know, here's what the, here's what the numbers show, Dave, or what the research shows. It's uh, extroverts are more likely to go into sales. Extroverts are more likely to get hired in sales jobs. Extroverts are more likely to get promoted in sales jobs. Uh, where we run into problems is that if you look at the link between or the correlation between extroversion and sales performance, that is who makes the cash register ring, the, the correlation is almost non-existent. And Adam Grant at the University of Pennsylvania just finished some very interesting research just published that says um, looking at measuring the introversion, extroversion levels of a software sales force and then charting their sales over the next three months. And what he found is, is that extroverts did a little bit better than introverts, but neither group did nearly as well as a third group. And those were the ambiverts, the ambiverts. Hmm. These are people who are in the middle, a little bit introverted, a little bit extroverted, like ambidextrous. And I think what's interesting about that are a couple of things. Number one, the data, I mean, his research, along with other things, show that strong extroverts are not good salespeople. And strong extroverts are the people who get hired. Um, strong introverts, not surprisingly, are not very good salespeople. I mean, that doesn't, that shouldn't surprise any of us. They are, they're resistant to strike up conversations. Uh, they don't push hard enough sometimes. But strong extroverts, again, the kind of glad-handing, smiley people we think are the naturals, they're not much better. Hmm. Um, they talk too much and listen too little. Uh, they push too hard. And it's really the people in the middle, the ambiverts, who do the best. The good news is that most of us are ambiverts. And it's interesting, too, because people say the same thing about leaders, that you can't be an effective leader unless you're kind of this extreme extrovert. So I'm fascinated by the research that you've cited here and really dispelling some of these myths about how to influence and, people. And, and that's actually right. And that, that's a myth, too. In fact, Adam Grant has done research in that area, too. And a lot of the um, some of what his research shows is that um, whether there's an introverted leader or an extroverted leader, the effectiveness depends on the kind of people who are being led. And what he has shown is that when, when the staff, when the, when the employees are, are fairly self-directed, proactive, um, extroverted leaders backfire um, and introverted leaders do better. When the staff needs a little bit of nudging, when it's not that proactive, uh, extroverted leaders are sometimes pretty effective. Cool. I've had several experiences in my career where I've gone to sales training with an organization and gone through the process of learning a sales script and needing to memorize that and have certain lines that are ready to uh, you know, speak to the customer when they ask certain questions. And, uh, and I found that you know, when I got out of that sales training process, usually a week or two later, a lot of times I was designing my own language, not really utilizing the script very much. And the use of sales scripts has been really rampant in developing salespeople for many, many years. And you call sales scripts into question a bit in this book. And so what can leaders and organizations do differently to develop their sales teams? Well, I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently evil about sales scripts. What my, my concern with them is that if something can be scripted to that degree, you might not need a human being to do it. 
that if it's so algorithmic and transactional that you can actually specify the four things you need to say to get the deal, um, I'm not sure you necessarily need a man or a woman to walk into an office. And my view is that sales is following the trajectory of many jobs in in this country and in Western Europe and much of the advanced world, and that the kind of routine uh, algorithmic functions uh, where you are just following a set of rules, um, those can be done faster by computers and, and cheaper overseas. And the, the skills that remain are the skills that the, the skills that become valuable in that process are ones that cannot be reduced to an algorithm. And so um, I think that if your sales process can be reduced to a script, I, my, my worry would be that you're selling a commodity product or service and you're actually overpaying people to do something that um, a sophisticated software could do a lot more cheaply, a lot more accurately. Hmm. Um, it turns out, I, I think that, you know, one of the, tied to that, Dave, is that one of the things that people learn in any kind of sales training is overcoming objections. And those are also tend to be very scripted. I, I don't think necessarily learning the script is inherently bad, but I think you've got to be totally ready to depart from the script. I think if you rigidly adhere to the script, you're going to be in, in trouble. And in fact, um, I write a little bit about how the lessons of improvisational theater, you know, again, which are very different from scripted theater, imp lessons of improvisational theater end up offering some really great guidance in how we overcome resistance and objection, whether we're selling a Winnebago or whether we're selling our idea at a meeting. Yeah. And the use of improv, when you brought it up in the book, I was first thinking like, how does this fit in? And then as I read through all you talked about improv and the experiences you went through and the research, it's fascinating. In fact, I'm, that's going to be my next book is to pick up one of those books on improv use. So, oh, good. Yeah. Uh, it's really cool. It's really it interesting. Is. And I, I think that, it, I, and it's, I think what's interesting about it is that, um, not to get too philosophical here, but that life itself is something of an improvisation. That is, you don't walk through the rest of your life with a script, oh, yeah. following a script and, you know, knowing for sure what someone else is going to say. And so somehow we say, well, you know, the 90, 99.999% of our interactions as human beings are impro improvised, but we're going to try to wrestle to the ground this, this 0.001% that is sales and try to make sure that it never deviates from the script. I, I just think it doesn't work that way. It's not that easy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You use the term non-sale selling, which you've mentioned already, to describe what a majority of us do in our work almost every day, whether we're in a traditional selling role or not. One area that you highlight is email subject lines. Oh, uh -huh. Why is the subject line so important and how does it matter in moving people? That's well, a really good question. And, and again, it, it allows us to take two steps back and, and think about what we do each day in a broader sense, which is what I'm, one of the things I'm trying to do here. So on the, on the topic of non-sales selling, you know, non-sales selling is selling where, as I mentioned briefly before, the cash register doesn't ring, money doesn't change hands, and the transaction isn't denominated in dollars. Hmm. It's denominated in time or effort or attention. So it's, it's me being, on a, being in an organization trying to convince someone to work on my team rather than a different team. It's me as a, it's, it's a CEO trying to get her employees to do different things or do things in different ways. Uh, it is uh, someone pitching an idea at a meeting. Um, and so um, email comes in because if we take that broader view that what those folks were doing in what I just described is a form of sales, then we can think about our actions, more kind of micro actions in that same kind of context. For instance, email. Um, I think what we forget is that every email is essentially a pitch. And a pitch is, is a plea for attention and an invitation to engage. 
And so every email is essentially a pitch. And there's researchers at Carnegie Mellon who have, sh- who have shown what makes an effective email subject line. That is what, you know, how can you make your email pitch more effective? And what they said, hmm. some very, very interesting research, is that the email subject lines that are most likely to get opened, or the, the emails with the emails that have subject lines with a certain set of characteristics are the ones most likely to get opened. And those characteristics are two. One is utility. The email subject line says, basically announces, this is going to be useful for your work, utility. And so it could be something like, um, let's say you asked me to um, uh, check out, um, I'm like the head of, I'm like the office manager in your operation, and and you want me to say, hey, Dan, can you check out, uh, we need a new uh, janitorial service for our office. And my email subject line to you, if I really want it to get opened, if I really want to get this thing over with so I can go to more interesting things than finding janitors for our company, my email subject line, if I want it to get opened, should say something like three options for new janitorial services. Okay. Mm. So it's, so it's announces very clearly it's going to be useful to you. The second thing is the second category is curiosity. That is email subject lines that create uh, uncertainty. So hmm, I'm curious about what this guy is saying. This is why President Obama, when he sent out gazillions of emails during the campaign, the email that was most open, the subject line of the email that was most open was an email subject line where the sender was Barack Obama and the subject line was, hey, H-E-Y. Whoa, wait a second. President's trying to say, hey, I got to open that. Yeah, that was funny. Um, And so um, where we fall down in this regard is when we we are in the mushy middle. So we have email subject lines that say question or a quick thing or follow up. And uh, what we need to do is, is, is follow these principles from the Carnegie Mellon research and offer email subject lines that are appeal to utility, which I think is the most important, and then curiosity. What it shows also, not to go too far on this, is that utility is more effective when people have heavy email loads and curiosity is more is more effective when people have lighter email loads oh interesting yeah i I picked up a book uh a couple years ago as a recommendation from david garfinkel on advertising headlines and it's amazing if you write a good headline subject line the difference it makes in getting traction on a blog post article email you got it it is it. it is amazing yeah Hey, I have a few questions from our community members, Daniel. I had uh, put up uh, a note that I was going to be interviewing you, and a few folks on Facebook jumped in with a few questions. So community uh, member question here from Josh. Uh, What are some ways to dispel the stereotypical salesperson view so you can move on to effective selling and marketing? Yeah. I mean, I think what we have to realize is that 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 stereotypical view of of sales is slimy and sleazy and duplicitous. is not, it's not about sales, but it's about the conditions in which sales have taken place. And I think you gotta you know, remind people of that. Um, so you know, 20 years ago, if you went to buy a car, the car dealer would know more than you about cars, mm-hmm. more about that make and model. But that's not our world anymore. And so you know, we have this kind of outdated notion of what sales is, and we need to refresh it. And I think that to do that, we have to offer, uh, we have to make the case, and we have to you know, remind people in their own experiences that they're not in that world of plaid sport coats and Herb Tarlek and sales being inherently sleazy. And so I find that, that um, using the example of cars is really important. So how would you feel about buying a car 20 years ago? How would you feel about buying a car today? 
And 20 years ago, you were at the, if you were a buyer, you were at the mercy of information asymmetry. Now that no longer exists. You can go into a car dealer and arguably know as much about cars, as much about that particular make and model as the car dealer. And I think that using that example um, and trying to shake people past this old fashioned view, you know, will slowly get us there. And the example you cite of CarMax in the book is just amazing. I've actually sold a couple of cars to CarMax over the last 10 years, and they've just really changed this whole model of how you buy and sell cars. Yeah. All right. Another community member question from Evelina. She asks, what are the most important characteristics of a leader? Since I know you've done some writing on leadership. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, some of it, some of it depends on, some of it depends on context. Um, and the list is pretty long. I mean, I would encourage her to look at, there's a great book by Bob Sutton at Stanford called Good Boss, Bad Boss, which yeah. goes into some of this research. So I encourage you to take a look at that. Uh, to me, one of the things, in, intriguing things from, from Sutton's research and from other kinds of, um, of uh, settings is that, that I think that the, the, the leaders um, tend to have, I think, a quieter set of, of virtues than we typically associate with leading. Um, it's less about the kind of, uh, kind of bombastic, chest-thumping, follow me into battle kind of leadership that we celebrate in the movies and more, as I said, about these quieter virtues of having a deep sense of purpose, having a sense of integrity, um, having a sense of conviction, uh, being a good listener. And then, uh, and then tactically, one of the most important things that, that, that Sutton's research has shown is the importance of leaders uh, actually uh, insulating their staff, their followers from all the garbage in organizations. So leaders as kind of like shock absorbers for organizational nonsense is a, is a really important attribute. Another question from community member Jackie, and I think she's followed some of your other work, and uh, she asks a question from Peter Drucker and just wondering, what do you want to be remembered for? Oh, wow. Tough existential question here. Yeah. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to, you know, my goal as a writer is to... Um, do things that help people think about things a little bit differently and then maybe improve what they do a little bit. And that, that's, that's really it. So if I'm remembered at all, uh, I'd like to be remembered for that saying, hey, you know, I read this guy's book and I now see the world a little bit differently and I learned something that I can do a little bit better in my life or my organization um, to, you know, be, work a little smarter, live a little better. You've been a Really, you've had a great success in your career, Daniel. You've written multiple best-selling books, which uh, you know, for some people, just writing one bestseller book would be an amazing career accomplishment. You you keep writing best-selling books. You're doing an amazing job getting information out there. Yeah, know, thanks. Prior to that, you worked at the White House. You know, you're a guy that has you know been pretty successful in your career. So, uh, what's a discovery you've made along the way about yourself that's contributed to your success? Jeez, I, you know, um, you know, I think that a lot of times if we, you know, we look at outcomes and then a lot of times we confect explanations for how those outcomes happened. And there's a huge amount of luck and randomness involved in that. If I've learned anything about myself is it's, um, and I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm loath to say it contributed to anything, but I'm happy to talk about what I learned about myself, which is that, um, I, I like to do things that that actually have an impact. Um, I, I I don't like. I would not want to write books that simply for 
30 seconds after someone closes the book, say, wow, that was interesting. And then never think about it again and never do anything differently. Mm. And so that aspect of writing is important to me that it, that it leaves a tiny little, a tiny, tiny little dent in the universe, not even a universe, a tiny little dent in somebody's life that because they've read something that uh, I've written, that, that they do something a little differently that makes their life better. I, I, I'm surprised that if, if you had told me that 16 years ago, I might've been a little bit surprised by how important that was to me. Um, in terms of actual how I work, um, for whatever it's worth, um, I, I've learned the hard way that I am a serial processor, not a parallel processor. That when I work on something, I have to work on that thing and that thing only. Mm. And the times in my life when I've tried to work on multiple important things at once have been absolutely disastrous. Oh, interesting. I mean, uh, you know, it's like, and, and you know what, I don't like that. I find that I still find that frustrating because I'd love to be able to say to kind of shift saying, okay, I got this big project going on and I got this big project going on and let me shift from a, I'll do a little bit of a, then I'll move over to B and I don't do, I just, I think at that. And so for better or worse, I've learned that I'm a, um, a, um, a serial processor. The other thing though, that I like is that, um, uh, one of the things that I like discovered about myself in terms of having been self-employed for, for 16 years is, um, and what I really like about it is that I love working with great people, but I don't like working with non-great people. And so for me, if someone isn't, if, if there's someone who I don't like working with, I just, you know, I'm pretty merciless about just saying, Hey, you know what, this is not working out to, you know, let's, let's try something else. That would be much harder to do if I were in an organization mm -hmm. and I wasn't in a position where I could untangle all those relationships. Now, when I find people I do like working with, you know, I do everything I can to maintain the relationship. So, um, so the, the, the importance to me of working with great people is, is, is huge. It's interesting you say that because I had, uh, I doubt you'd remember, but about a year ago, I, uh, emailed you about being a guest on the show on another topic related to drive. And you emailed back right away and said, Hey, thanks for the invitation. Sorry, I can't do it. Working on another project. So you've, you know, at least from the outside, it seems like you've really mastered that ability to kind of work at one thing at once. What have you had to teach people around you in order to be able to do that effectively? Are there different boundaries you've had to set up in order to make that happen for yourself? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, sort of. Um, I, I actually, uh, um, a few things are, I mean, like say when I'm working on a book, um, I will... Um, you know, basically turn off my email, uh, turn off any kind of outside contact in the morning when that's usually my best times. And then, um, you know, I try to be, just be very, I try to be, you know, just, just explain that to people. Um, and I do, you know, a lot of times, you know, things like this, which are, you know, totally interesting stuff that I want to do. You know, I just, I like to tell people if it's stuff that I truly want to do, basically saying, Hey, that sounds interesting, but I can't do it right now. And I find most people are pretty, um, reasonable about that. Um, I, I think that works. So, so I think if you just kind of help people understand how you work and how you do things, um, it ends up being, um, you can, you know, I think you can work more effectively. And so the, so the people who I do the most work with, um, have kind of learned my, you know, those, those kinds of, um, uh, idiosyncrasies. I just, am a, you know, I wish I weren't Dave, I wish I were a different kind of worker, but I am, uh, I am the, single-minded tortoise, not the multifaceted hare. Um, I work very, very slowly on anything of significance. I'm extremely slow. I'm extremely deliberate. I'm extremely, um, 
unifocused. And a big part of me wants to be faster, able to do multiple things. But, you know, the older I get, the more I realize, as Popeye once said, I am what I am. So I have to go with that. And then, as you say, um, help people understand how I do that work. I appreciate you sharing that because one of the things is very this is very therapeutic, Dave. Yeah. Okay. You know, one of the things I try to spend a lot of time talking with our audience about the people I coach is that, you know, the best way to lead is knowing ourselves well first and then and then taking that information and going and being able to communicate to others. And so I think it's a great example of that and a really good reminder for all of us that step number one is looking inside, figuring out what works best for us and and to that point, I really appreciate the work you've done, Daniel. And as far as having a change in effect on how people think, I I continue to pick up Drive off my bookshelf and have used it and referenced it for many client projects. So you absolutely have had that effect in the world. And I know you have Thanks. for a lot of our community members too. Daniel Pink is the author of To Sell is Human. It's a new bestseller. It's an awesome book. Pick it up. I actually picked it up twice. I bought it both uh, digitally and I bought the audio. And I love that you do the audio recordings of your books, Daniel. It's awesome because you have a great voice and it's just a pleasure listening to you. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me for today's show. It was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Very interesting. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Pink as much as I did. It's always great to get to talk to someone who's influenced my thinking, and I hope he's influenced your thinking as well, too. And in fact, I'd like you to join in on continuing the conversation at coachingforleaders.com slash 84. And if you hop on there, you will see the notes for the show. More importantly, though, is the discussion forum under the notes. Hop on there, add in your comments questions, feedback. I'd love to hear it and jump in the conversation with you. You can also call into our community feedback hotline. That number is 94938LEARN. And you can reach me directly by email if you prefer at feedback at coachingforleaders.com. One of the things Daniel and I talked about at the end of the show here was the importance of recognizing who we are and doing something about it. And so if uh, you haven't had a chance to spend some time thinking about that, I would really challenge you to spend some time considering who you are and how does that change your work habits? Daniel gave us the example of how he's worked on working on one project at a time in order to help honor you know his strengths and the way that he works best. Who are you? How have the choices you've made helped you to work and live more effectively? And if we have clarity around that, we can influence the world more effectively. Mahatma Gandhi said it best years ago, become the change you want to see in the world. And maybe this is the first time you've picked up the show, uh, or maybe you've been listening for a long time. If especially for those of us who've been listening and part of this community for a long time, uh, what's something that you've learned about yourself since listening to this show, either this episode or a previous one, that has changed your thinking or helped you to recognize something about yourself and changed what you're doing now. I would love to hear about it. Be sure to drop a note to me by email or up on the forum. And if you are joining the show for the first time, drop a note on the forum as well. I'd love to get connected with you. And by the way, I would really encourage you to pick up Daniel's book, To Sell is Human. You can get it on Amazon or all the usual places. And uh, he does do a great job in the audiobook. And by the way, we talked for a few minutes after the interview. And Daniel said that if you do like I did and purchase the book both digitally and get the audiobook to purchase the book twice, 
uh, that he would be okay with that. So just in case you were worried. Hey, thank you very much to Randy Conley, Dirk Beveridge, Pam Davis, Gary Takas, Jennifer Miller, M.K. Anderson, Eric Fisher, Ken Blanchard, Eileen Ayub, Jamil Kassab, Philip Kemp, Jen Walsh, Renetta Tropeno, and Nehemia Bangwa. Thank you so much for following me either on Twitter, Facebook, or Google+. And if you would like to stay connected to the show, hear about future interviews, hear about articles that I'm reading during the week that'll help you to lead more effectively, go to coachingforleaders.com slash Twitter slash Facebook or slash plus, depending on which of those networks you prefer to connect on. I'm posting on all of them. So again, that's coachingforleaders.com slash Twitter slash Facebook or slash plus. Hey, if what you heard in this episode is helpful to you and you would like a midweek booster shot during the week, I send out an email article every week. And if you would like to receive that, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe and you'll get it. You'll also get announcements about future webinars. Our first live webinar was last month and more are coming. So again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. Have a great week, everyone. See you next week.